Good morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise your holy name. For you and you alone are worthy of all praise. We ask that you would help us now as we turn to your word. We trust and we truly believe that you alone have the words of eternal life. And so we come to your word now expectantly, truly believing that you will work in the hearts of your people through this passage. Mold us, Father, by your grace into disciples who live by your word for your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. Begin a new chapter in this gospel this morning. Now your bulletin says that our text this morning is uh, verses 1 through 9. That was just me being overly ambitious. Our modified goal will be to get through the first six verses of the chapter. And we'll save verses 7 through 9 for next week. So let's just start by reading the text. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So our passage this morning deals with the twelve, right? the twelve apostles, uh, their initial mission that Jesus sends them on. And you'll remember if you've been with us that these men were chosen from among the broader group of disciples all the way back in chapter 6. He called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, his brother John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. And so they were called, uh, they were named They were set apart back then in chapter 6, and all through chapter 6, 7, 8, and now here in chapter 9, right, they're always with him. They've left their fishing boats, they've left their tax collector booths, they've left their homes, they've left their families, they've left everything, and they've been following Jesus everywhere, listening to his teachings, watching his miracles. But if you think about it, even though they are always there, in the background of the narratives. And sometimes they make these quick little cameos, but they themselves have not really done anything up to this point. But like all the doing in this gospel, the teaching and the proclaiming and the preaching, the miracles and the healings and the exorcisms, all the doing thus far has been Jesus. But that changes with our text this morning. A text in which Jesus commissions the apostles and sends them out so that they themselves might begin to do the work of the ministry. Jesus knows that he's not going to be around forever. 
He knows that he's got to die for his people soon and then go back to his father. And so here he prepares his apostles to become his representatives, his ambassadors, that they might then carry on the work of gospel ministry even after he's long gone. And so you can think of this particular commissioning at the beginning of Luke chapter 9 as this short-term mission trip to the towns and cities and villages of Galilee. One that is going to act as a small foretaste of the greater mission that they're going to be given later. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so later, you all are going to go to the end of the earth. For now, I just want you to do a trial run of sorts around the region of Galilee. But he's not going to send them even on this trial run without equipping them without giving them some specific instructions. And that equipping, right, those instructions are what our passage this morning is about. And so our task, right, as we study this text, as we look at this text, our task is really twofold. One, we need to understand these verses in their original context, right? Why does Jesus give these particular resources and these particular instructions to those particular men for this particular trip at this particular time. Understanding the text in its original context. But also, we should at the same time think about how this text then speaks to us. We are not part of that original context. But all scripture is profitable for us as God's people. And so how should we think about these instructions? How do they apply to our lives? And on that last task, I think there's two extremes in how we might think about this text's applicability to us, and we need to be careful of both extremes. On one end, you have the reading of ourselves directly into this text, right? Thinking that everything that Jesus says here to the 12 directly applies to us as disciples of Jesus. And so, in that line of thinking... Well, Jesus commands the 12 here that they're to go out and cure diseases. And so therefore, we as faithful disciples, we should go out and cure diseases. Or since Jesus commands the 12 here not to take any bag or any bread, therefore, if we're going to be faithful disciples, we should never pack any luggage when we go on a mission trip. But before we jump to that extreme, we need to remember a few things. Number one, we are not apostles at least not in the technical sense of the word that's used here. We were not with Jesus from the beginning. We did not see the resurrected Jesus. And we were not given any commission directly from Jesus. But second, even for the apostles, this was a very specific set of instructions for a very specific mission trip. And I'll show you how we know that later on. And so even for the original apostles, right, these are not universal rules that will always apply to them for the rest of their lives. And so how much more true is that than for us, who are so far removed from that original context? All that to say, we need to be careful before we draw a straight line from what Jesus says in this passage to the apostles to our own lives. Because these commands were not meant for us here and now. Uh, These commands were meant for these apostles on this specific trip. And so we don't want to make the mistake 
of reading ourselves directly into the text, we also don't want to make the mistake of completely separating ourselves from this text. Perhaps by saying, well, these verses are describing the work of ministry. And so it's applicable for pastors and missionaries and maybe really committed Christians, but it's not really applicable for common lay people like me. But that's not quite right either, because while the New Testament does acknowledge that some are called to be pastors, right, called in a specific way, a special way for the work of the ministry, the New Testament also makes it clear that all believers are called in a more general way to the work of the ministry. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, right? So those are people uh, whom we might consider to be ministers. But now look at how the work of these ministers is described to equip the saints, the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of of the fullness of Christ. A quick commercial plug for our Wednesday night Bible study. I'll be teaching on that exact passage this Wednesday at 7 p.m., so uh, come out then if you want to hear more about those verses. Uh, But back to our main program, right? That passage makes it clear that the work of those who do ministry, so to speak, is to equip all of the saints for the work of the ministry, It's what's sometimes referred to as the every member ministry of the church. Every Christian, in at least some sense, does ministry. Another way to see that same truth is to just think about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts that every Christian has received from the Lord in order that we might minister to one another. 1 Peter 4.10, as each, each, Each believer, every believer, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And so if your idea of ministry is, well, that's something for pastors and missionaries, and that's something for really committed Christians, well, that's not what the New Testament teaches. Every Christian is called to minister, to use the spiritual gifts that they've been given for the good of the body. And so we want to avoid either extreme, either thinking that this passage is all about us or thinking that this passage is not relevant for us at all. But we need to be somewhere in the middle, recognizing that this is a passage about the original apostles in their original context, but at the same time realizing that there are timeless principles that we can draw out of this text that would very much apply to each one of us as we think about doing ministry in our own lives. So with all that said, let's go through the passage now, and let me point out five principles that we, as disciples of Jesus, uh, that we can draw out of this first commissioning of the 12 apostles uh, for our own lives and our own ministry. Principle number one is that we must proclaim the kingdom of God. We must proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 2 And I'll come back to verse 1 in a bit. Verse 2 says, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And it's not in the least bit surprising 
that Jesus would send out his representatives to do exactly that, to proclaim the kingdom of God. Because that's exactly what he himself has been doing throughout his own ministry. You remember Luke chapter 4, verse 43? He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I was sent for this purpose. That's why I'm here. That's my mission, to preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And so that's exactly what we catch him doing several chapters later in Luke 8.1. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And so you see how the twelve were with him then, as he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, Well, now they themselves have been commissioned to do the exact same thing that they saw their master doing. So if you think about it, this right here, Luke chapter 9, this is kind of like the beginning of the church in a sense. Because these apostles have been sent out to proclaim the gospel message, the message which is the foundation of the church. And it was the same message that they would, in the book of Acts, bring to the end of the earth so that all who heard and believed that message then become the church. And so if you think about it, you think about this long enough, it is going to blow your mind. Uh, Each and every one of us who are believers, uh, we can trace our spiritual lineage back to these apostles, back to Luke chapter 9. Because the person who shared the gospel with you or discipled you, or taught you, well, presumably someone shared the gospel with them, or discipled them, or taught them. And someone before that shared the gospel with them, or discipled them, or taught them. You take that back enough generations, you should find your way back to one of these apostles who would themselves, of course, go back to Jesus. And even if, even if, You got saved on a remote island by yourself, just reading a New Testament that fell out of the sky and nobody's ever shared the gospel with you and no one's ever discipled you and no one's ever taught you anything. Well, who wrote that New Testament? The apostles and their associates. And so each and every believer should be able to trace their lineage somehow back to Luke chapter 9, these 12 apostles. So the apostles were sent to proclaim the kingdom of God. But then again, that second question, what about us? Now, as we think about how this applies to us, well, the rest of the New Testament makes it crystal clear that one of the fundamental duties of every Christian, every believer, is to preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Where the King Jesus has come to save sinners, and that by repenting and believing... Any sinner might be made part of that kingdom. First Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That you may proclaim, and he's not talking about the apostles only. That is for every single Christian Believer, right? The work of the ministry that's been given to every believer that they might proclaim the gospel. And this is where we as a church ought to be careful because there's temptations to deviate from that path. 
or not just in our age, but I think in every age, but where the church can become all about politics or all about social justice or all about community service or all about everything except the gospel. But we need to remember that the primary purpose of Jesus, I was sent for this purpose, where the primary purpose of Jesus is the primary purpose of the apostles, is the primary purpose of the church, to to preach Christ and him crucified, to proclaim the kingdom of God. So let me just take a moment right now and do exactly that with all of you this morning. Because I know you're a mixed crowd. Some of you, God, by his grace, has has saved you, has granted you faith and repentance, and you're faithfully walking with him, and you're really excited to apply this passage to your own lives as soon as you leave this room. But there's others of you in this room who, you're not a Christian. You're here for whatever reason, but there's no true love for Jesus and his word because, well, you've never been born again. Well, I proclaim to you the kingdom of God. And it starts with the acknowledgement that you are not fit. I am not fit. None of us are fit for the kingdom of God. Because we're sinners. We've sinned against the holy God. But we've broken his law. We've rebelled against him. And for that, we deserve an eternity in hell where we will be rightly judged and punished for the sins that we've committed against the holy God. But the good news of the gospel... The good news of the kingdom of God is that this same Jesus that we're talking about here, well, he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to live the perfect life that you and I never could. Then he died in the place of sinners like me and like you. He took upon himself all the sins of his people. And in exchange, he gave us his perfect righteousness. So on the cross, he dies for our sin. He suffers the wrath of God that we deserve for the sins that we've committed so that we might be forgiven. And then he rose again from the dead, defeating death forever and allowing forgiven sinners like us to enter into his kingdom. And today you can be part of that kingdom. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have eternal life with a gracious and loving and good God. You can be made right with the God of the universe if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ today. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. That's the good news that his disciples are called to proclaim. Principle number one, we must proclaim the kingdom of God. Principle number two is that we are given power and authority in our mission. Let's go back to verse one now. He called the 12 together and gave them, here it is, power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Power and authority. We've been talking a lot about those two concepts in this gospel you remember the latter half of chapter 8 where we've been the last couple of Sundays? Right? That was all about Jesus demonstrating power and authority. The calming of the storm. Showing Jesus' power and authority over the natural realm. The healing of the demoniac. 
showing Jesus' power and authority over the spiritual realm. The healing of the woman with the issue of blood, showing Jesus' power and authority over disease and physical sickness. And then the raising of Jairus' daughter, again showing Jesus' power and authority, this time even over life and death. Now, as Jesus is doing all of this in Luke chapter 8, remember that the apostles are watching all of it happen. They're watching it all firsthand. And now Jesus, in commissioning those apostles to go and represent him, well, he doesn't just leave them in their own strength. Hey, you guys, just try your best. No, he equips them with the very power and authority that are necessary to do what he is commanding them to do. And again, remember, this trip in Luke chapter 9 is just a small preview of their ultimate broader mission to go and bring the gospel to the end of the earth, right? the Great Commission. Look at how even then, right, in the Great Commission, Jesus gives them the necessary power and authority to do what they're commanded to do. First, let's think about the authority. Look at what it says in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, all authority, authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus delegates that authority that he's been given, he delegates that to his disciples. He sends them in that authority to go and make disciples. So you've got the authority and you've got the power. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That power, of course, was fulfilled in Pentecost in the form of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So how do we apply this principle of power and authority to our own lives and our own ministry. Like, should we expect to be able to do healings and cure diseases and cast out demons? Well, that's again where we need to be careful and cautious about directly applying this text to our own situations because we are not apostles. We have not been given the power and authority to perform miracles like that. Miracles that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians as the signs of a true apostle. So that was reserved for the apostolic generation as they were given those miraculous powers to authenticate their message. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared, right, that salvation was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so it was his will that those signs and wonders and miracles would authenticate the apostles' message. Remember, they don't have the New Testament back then. They can't just take people to John or Romans or Hebrews or 1 Peter. And people knew that what they were saying about salvation, about eternity about the kingdom of God, people knew that that was true because of the miracles that they would perform, like healing. But we, we don't need those signs. 
We don't need those signs to authenticate what we're saying about the kingdom of God because we do have the authority of the Bible, right? the completed New Testament. We can take people to the word, point to its authority, and so that nobody has to take our word for anything, but they can go directly to God's word itself. And so while we're not given the power and authority to perform these miracles like the apostles, well, we have been given power and authority, going back to principle number one, to proclaim the kingdom of God. Because it's all of us, every single believer in this room, who's been given the task of the Great Commission. It's not just for the apostles. But all of us are given the authority to go and make disciples, right? To share the gospel with the lost. And all of us have been given this ministry of reconciliation. God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Making us ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And all of us have been given that authority and power. Right? Remember the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? The third person of the Godhead literally dwells in us that he might empower us to do that work. And so all Christians have the power and the authority to proclaim the kingdom of God. And that, friends, is vitally important for us to remember. Because let's be honest, proclaiming the kingdom of God, evangelism, missions, that can feel daunting and intimidating and kind of scary. Our fear of man kicks in and we all of a sudden feel very underqualified and incapable. But that's when we need to remember that Jesus himself has given his disciples the power and the authority to do exactly that. And so for us to say that we are under-equipped, perhaps unwittingly, but we're basically calling into question his promises to us. We're not trusting that he's actually given us the power and the authority that he said he would. So next time you're evangelizing or sharing the gospel or whatever it might be, you just kind of begin to feel under-equipped and perhaps feel overwhelmed by the thought of proclaiming the kingdom of God to an unbeliever. Well, ask yourself two questions. Number one, do I have the authority to do this? Yes, Jesus has given me his authority to go and make disciples. Question number two, do I have the power to do this? Oh, absolutely. Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in me. And so the infinitely powerful God is with me at all times. Well, friends, if we have the power and if we have the authority... What more could we ask for? Principle number two, we are given power and authority in our mission. Which brings us to principle number three, which is that we must rely on God. I'm getting that from verses three and four. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. So here Jesus describes for the apostles what this mission is going to look like from a practical perspective. And so he addresses both their luggage 
and their accommodations. Uh, first, with regards to luggage, they're told to, to pack light. Our family just went away on a quick road trip uh, for, for four nights. Four nights. That's all. Four, four nights. Our minivan, it's a pretty big car. Our minivan is like packed to the brim, like overflowing with luggage. Like you open the trunk and like eight things are going to fall down in this avalanche on you. So honestly, I am probably disqualified from talking about this, packing light. But what did packing light look like for them? Well, first, it meant no staff, right? Think of a, a walking stick. What Jesus is saying here is don't bring an extra walking stick. And there's no bag for carrying provisions and no bread, which makes sense because you've got no bag to put it in and no money, which makes sense because you can't buy bread with it. Instead, the idea is that they are to rely on the hospitality of those to whom they minister. They're going to give you the bread that you need. So don't worry about carrying it or buying it or any of that. And lastly, don't have two tunics. A tunic is like your, your undershirt. It's worn under the cloak. And so Jesus isn't saying that two is the magic number. You can bring one. You can bring three. Just don't bring two. No, he's just telling them, just go in the clothes that you're currently wearing. Go as you're currently dressed. Don't worry about packing extra clothes, extra tunics. And then with regard to accommodations, they're commanded to stay in whatever place they entered. The idea there is that when they arrive at some town or village or whatever it might be, they would try to find someone to stay with, someone who would show them hospitality. Hospitality was a big deal back then because well, they didn't have nice hotels like we do and they didn't have Airbnb and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, inns back then were generally unsafe. And so they would have to find some hospitable host who would allow them to stay with them while they minister to that town or that village. But suppose that as they minister in that place, then someone comes along, maybe it's someone who got saved through their ministry or uh, someone that they healed. And suppose that person says, hey, Peter, why don't you come and stay at our place? You're sleeping on the couch at the Johnsons. Why don't you uh, come and stay with us instead because we have an extra bedroom? Well, that would be tempting, like a free upgrade. Whether it's being bumped up from economy to first class or getting upgraded at the check-in from a standard hotel room to a suite. Everybody loves a free upgrade. But Jesus says, no, don't do that. Stay in your original place until you leave the town. And it's not that it would be necessarily sinful to be in a more comfortable place as opposed to a less comfortable place. Because if you think about it, if that more comfortable place was the first place that was offered to them, they would have to stay there. Right? You can't downgrade to a less comfortable place. But rather, the idea is that they ought to be content with whatever they have and not be seeking for other opportunities. And so Jesus' point here, right, with both the luggage and the accommodations, both their stuff and where they're staying, is that his disciples just shouldn't be worried about any of those things for now. But don't let that all distract you. Rather, just focus your energy on the task at hand. If you've flown unencumbered by luggage, like all you have is your little carry-on backpack, you know the freedom, 
Right? You know the freedom of, of not having stuff on your journey, all that TSA business and, and going through baggage claim and your shampoo's exploding inside your suitcase. Right? You don't have to worry about any of those things if you pack light. All you're concerned with is getting on and getting off that plane as quickly as possible. And so by not having to worry about luggage or accommodations, they could lay aside all those weights and run the race that's set before them. But there is a greater purpose to these instructions. And we know that because Jesus himself tells that to the apostles later on in this very gospel, Luke 22. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, right? That's referring to this mission here in Luke chapter 9. Did you lack anything? When I sent you out with nothing, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. We lacked for nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. Like, bring your money. Bring whatever stuff you'll need for this next mission. And the one who has no sword should sell his cloak and buy one. So two things we see there. First, we see that the Specific rules that are given in Luke 9 that we're covering this morning, they are not universal rules for all disciples. They're not even universal rules for these apostles. Right? Rather, these are rules that are specific to that mission in Luke 9, because in Luke 22, he later says, don't worry about that, those rules that I gave you earlier. And second, we see that these very specific rules in Luke 9 they're given to the apostles so that they might purposely be put in this very dependent position to demonstrate to them that even if they bring no stuff, they're not going to lack for anything because God himself would provide for all their needs. And so they could rely on God. It's a similar lesson that the Israelites learned or should have learned in their wandering in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 29 I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. So listen, if you don't have two tunics, you're all right. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread. You have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. That you may know that I am the Lord your God, right? That you may know that you can rely on me. This is just like the Israelites were to rely on God for manna, each and every morning. So the apostles here are to rely only on God that he would give to them their daily bread. So how do we apply this to our own ministry? Well, again, we need to be careful that we not take this out of context to mean that missionaries shouldn't pack anything. No, by all means, missionaries should prepare and plan and pack accordingly Uh, Again, the instruction to not bring anything was specific to that particular mission trip. But the broader principle, that even as we sang this morning, the Lord will provide, that's something that every believer in every generation ought to trust. His saints, what is fitting, shall ne'er be denied. That my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Principle number three, We must rely on God. But friends, we have to admit, that's often not that easy. Because oftentimes, relying on God means that we need to sacrifice the comfort or the ease or the security that are so naturally desirous to us 
in our innate self-reliance. And we can easily elevate those things, the comfort and ease and security. We can elevate those things in a refusal to rely on God. But consider this, to the extent that that's true of our lives, let's go back to the parable of the sower from a couple of weeks ago. Then there's not all that much difference between us and that thorny soil. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be on guard here. We need to be on guard against the deceitfulness of riches, the temptation to store up our riches here on earth. We need to be on guard against thinking that this life is just about providing for ourselves instead of seeing every good gift is coming from the Lord. We need to be on guard against putting comfort and ease and security above what we're called to do for the kingdom of God. We need to be on guard against the sinful desire that exists in each of our hearts to not want to sacrifice anything for God's kingdom. The principle number three, we must rely on God. Principle number four, we will meet some opposition. Look at verse five. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Wherever they do not receive you, now we know in this gospel that Jesus has already met much opposition. He has already been not received many times. Chapter five, the the Jewish leaders grumble that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Chapter 6, after those two Sabbath incidents, uh, the Pharisees and scribes are ready to kill him. Chapter 7, it's Simon the Pharisee this time who's complaining that Jesus allows the sinful woman to kiss his feet. In all of those cases, the disciples are present. And sometimes they're directly involved in the controversy. But all of that opposition, all of the opposition in this gospel up to this point has been directed primarily at Jesus. The apostles are just bystanders or witnesses of that opposition. But here Jesus makes it plain that the servant is no greater than his master. If they hate him, they're going to hate his messengers, his ambassadors, his apostles too. He basically says the same thing in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world will love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, because you represent me, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And when they reject you, when they hate you, well, it's not just, hey, thanks for your time, see you later. No, they were to communicate the seriousness of what that rejection entailed. The severe judgment that these people are calling upon themselves by rejecting Jesus and his messengers. And so the apostles were to communicate that judgment symbolically by shaking the dust off of their feet as a testimony against them. This was apparently a a common practice back in the day for the Jews. And whenever they walked through Gentile lands, And they get back to Jewish lands while they would shake the dust off of their feet as if to say, like, I'm not bringing this Gentile dust into the Jewish lands. But remember the context. The apostles are going to Jewish lands. 
to the Jewish people here in this mission. And so for them to shake the dust off their feet against these Jewish towns, well, that's as if to say, just because you're Jews doesn't mean you're exempt from the judgment. Anybody who rejects Jesus and his salvation, Jew or Gentile, anybody who rejects that salvation, well, he does that to his own destruction. And so you remember the parable of the sower. We keep going back to the parable of the sower. Remember the parable of the sower? You have the different responses to the word of God. Well, these apostles, they're now preaching the word of God. And so they are now sowers. And so they should expect, just like they learned earlier, they should expect that not all of the soil is going to be good soil. They're going to run into hard, packed down soils and weedy soils and shallow soils. They should expect opposition just like Jesus was rejected. Now here the line is a little bit easier to draw between the 12 apostles and us because the New Testament makes it clear, 2 Timothy 3.12, that all, all, without exception, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So friends, these are principles that each one of us needs to remember whenever we're sharing the gospel with someone. Oftentimes, you're going to be rejected. You're going to meet opposition. The soil is going to be hard or thorny or shallow. But when they reject you, well, keep in mind that they're not really rejecting you as much as they're rejecting Jesus and his gospel. But to the extent that you are faithfully and humbly and winsomely sharing Christ with them, and that message is rejected... Well, that's not on the sower. That's the soil's rejection of the seed. Or as Jesus would put it in the next chapter in Luke 10, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, right? Expect opposition, expect rejection. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Principle number four, we will meet some opposition. And that brings us to principle number five, which is that we must obey. We must obey. Look at verse six. They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Like in one sense, kind of feels like a meaningless verse because it basically just repeats what verse two says. Right? Look at verse two. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Verse six. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Those two verses basically say the same thing. But you see, that's the point. The point is that the disciples did exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. But to preach the gospel and heal exactly like he told them to do. And that's not the case just on this one mission. You think about the entire book of Acts. What do the apostles do in the book of Acts? Well, they take the power and authority that they've been given. They preach the gospel And they do it while showing this complete reliance on God, enduring much opposition. And so basically, they take to heart principles one through four, and they obey everything that Jesus teaches them to do. And friends, that's no small point. Because true disciples of Jesus are always, always marked by obedience. Not that they will always perfectly obey, 
But their life is always characterized by obedience to God and his word. The good soil, well, it's marked by the fruit that it produces in obedience. Jesus' sheep, they're the ones that hear his voice. And Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So hopefully, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, you've picked up some of these principles for yourself, for your own ministry, as you think about how you might minister the gospel. And so you know that you are commanded to preach and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the dying world around you. To preach the gospel to your unsaved family and friends. And you know that you have the power and the authority to do exactly what Jesus has called you to do. He has not left you alone, but he has given you his authority. He has granted you his power through the Holy Spirit that indwells in you. And you know that you ought to, in your ministry, show this dependence and reliance on God. And you know that you're going to meet some opposition along the way. But that any rejection of the gospel message really is a rejection of Jesus, exactly what he promised. And so we know all these things. But the million-dollar question is, will we obey? Christ has given us a commission. Just like he gives a commission to the apostles here, he has given us a commission. And so will we, like they, do exactly what he's commanded? Principle number five We must obey. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful privilege it is to be your disciples, to be ambassadors for Christ, to be charged with the responsibility to bring this gospel of good news to the lost. Father, we pray that you would help us that we might be a bold and uncompromising people to that end, that we might rely on you, and that we might be obedient in this call that we've been given. Help us by your grace, by your spirit. Amen.